0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism, coming to you from 2 in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of your Nation, right across Australia on the community radio network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey, and I'm the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at the University of Technology, Sydney, and my producer today is Anthony Dockrell. Today, we have a one-on-one special a one-on-one special with a special guest, Eric Jensen, the Editor-in-Chief of the Saturday Paper, the flagship of the Swartz Media's, Swartz Media's ever-growing empire, which now takes in the monthly, the quarterly essay, Australian, Australian Foreign Affairs, and a few more things on the way. Eric, welcome. Peter, thank you for having me. Okay, so how long has it been, the Saturday Paper? Um, about five years, right? And you've been there virtually every step of the way?
1: Yes, for about
0: uh, two
1: years before it launched um, to, to plan it and, and bring it into shape. And then we launched March 1, 2014, which is a little hmm. bit more than five years ago now.
0: Yeah, I remember having a conversation with you well uh, oh, five, six, maybe even seven years ago about the Sunday paper in a pub in Surrey Hills. Uh, you were about, about to go to Melbourne. Is it what you thought it was going to be?
1: It is, happily. Um, I was looking recently at a, a notebook where the early sketches for what the paper would become were, were sort of gathered up, and um, the paper is, miraculously, I think, very much like the title that was in my head before it began. Mm. Um, and the audience is very much like the audience that we were hoping to find. Um, and the journalism we're doing, I think, is is very much and ever more like the journalism we were hoping to do.
0: So was that just um, kind of gut instinct? I mean, around that time, just for for our listeners to remember, there was, you know, just been mass redundancies at the City Morning Herald and The Age. There was a real set, The Guardian, you know, wasn't really here. Uh, There was a kind of sense that there was a kind of space in the market for something like the Saturday paper. Was that a kind of gut or was there kind of some science behind that?
1: I'd like to tell you that there was science, Peter. Yes, um, I'm sure you would. <laughs> there's what it is, and it's something that drives any number of the things that we do here at Schwartz Media. Um, a real belief, an optimistic belief in the seriousness of Australian people, mm-hmm. um, and a belief that if you make journalism that is serious, that um, that that is built around a, an ethos of quality, there will be an audience for it, and really the you know, the research we did in market wasn't much more than that, much mm. more than believing in people.
0: Well, it's kind of proved to be true because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, Schwartz Media, in a sense, has kind of crept up on us. I mean, it, there was the Saturday paper and, and before the, and the monthly and such like, but it seemed kind of small once, but now it's kind of a bit bigger, quite a lot bigger. Did, it, did is that Was that part of the plan, the sort of this kind of gradual growth rather than... You know, I really is a you know with Australian Foreign Affairs and the new uh, podcast, which we'll talk about in a minute. It really is quite a media empire now.
1: Look, I think everything that we um, start here, we intend to be bigger than the last title. So the the Saturday Papers audience is bigger than the monthly's audience. Uh, Seven AM, our new podcast will be bigger still than the Saturday Paper. Um, and the experience is that when one title grows, the others grow. So mm-hmm. you know, looking at the last results from Roe Morgan for year-on-year growth with um, just the Saturday paper and the monthly, for instance. Um, they're both up, in terms of audience, I think the, the monthly's up about 11%. Um, the Saturday paper's up about 16 or 17%. Mm, um, and they're really, they're commanding an audience now that, it, that is you know, it's, it's sizable and serious.
0: mm well, we'll get back to the, to the advertising plug later in the show as well, because I'd like to talk about the new <laughs> podcast. But let's before we get started into you know, issues of journalism of the day, um, we need to talk a little bit more about you. I mean, you were kind of a, a wonderkind, I mean, maybe it's an overused word, but you're a bit of a wonderkind at the Sydney Morning Herald. You joined at the age of eight, weren't you?
1: <laughs> I, I started writing for the Herald when I was 15, um, but then I, I started on the news staff when I was 18.
0: Incredible, you were the youngest at the time, i think is that right
1: i was and you... i was i think one editorship
0: before yours indeed indeed I was a very obviously a very wise editor um so that was i mean that was a i remember at the time i mean you were um and there were there was a sort of a bit of a trend to recapture a sense of uh you know that kind of spirit of cadets and that kind of getting really smart young people from school instead of uh you know. Uh, slightly wizened, uh, you know, uh, journalists or uh, graduates, I suppose. And and it, there, was, there was a big challenge for you, but you were sort of born to it. I know I'm blowing smoke up your bottom here, but you were kind of born to journalism. Was it all, did you always want to be a journo?
1: Well, it's the only thing I've ever done, but it's not something I was always certain about doing. Um, you know, I don't, I don't have a romantic childhood story to tell you about, you know, being six and starting a family newspaper or anything like that. It's not it's not something um, that I did, I you know, when I was a kid, I thought that I would be a scientist probably. Um, but there's still time. There is still time. Yes. Um, but I have, you know, I, you, you can't really practice science in the uh, dilettante fashion that you can be a journalist, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> true, true. Um, maybe you can, I don't know. Yeah, it's
0: maybe fun. we should try it. Dilettante scientist.
1: Yeah, it's a good idea. Um, anyway. Think, you know, the, the thing about that time, and you know this, it, Stepping into a newsroom as big as what the Herald's newsroom was then, mm. as an eighteen-year-old with you know very little experience, there were enough people around to to learn from the institution, and that's that's something that's really you know doesn't happen in in newsrooms anymore because newsrooms aren't big enough to do it.
0: Mm. Yeah, one of the great tragedies, and and not, not spoken about enough, to be honest. Uh, yeah, um, just staying on you, uh, apart from the Saturday paper and your activities at Schwartz and the Herald. Uh, you are the author of a very good biography on the Dear Departed Australian artist Adam Cullen, uh, which has become a biopic, which uh, people may have read the book, of course, but they may have also seen the, uh, the biopic called Acute Misfortune. I mean, Cullen was another kind of, I wouldn't say a wonder-kimmer, he sort of was a wonderfully eccentric man who, among other things, shot you in the leg when you were writing the book. That's right. So this is immersive journalism or just the problems of hanging around with a boozed-up, sort of slightly DF'd kind of artist,
1: Uh, I think it's a number of things. A big part of it was being very young and um, very anxious to succeed, not really understanding what journalism was and putting myself into situations um, that I thought resembled immersion journalism, but in reality were probably exploitative and abusive.
0: On his part to you. Mm.
1: Right. So you have regret? uh i don't have i don't have regrets um i don't i i just don't wish to be romantic about uh mm-hmm. about that period of time but it it's also it is also how i learned to be a writer um and in in all sorts of curious ways i'm grateful for it
0: hmm. okay all right. Well, we'll leave it at that but it's an interesting uh, I, I i it sounds like you reflected on it quite a bit
1: it's useful to learn from these things right I think, I mean, you don't learn anything when you write a book. um, Mm. But when you write a film, you do, because suddenly, for the first time, um, in this story, at least, I had to start considering um, the motives of the character that was based on me. And so I couldn't hide any longer the way that, in journalism, we uh, are allowed so often to hide, um, because we're discouraged from being part of the story ourselves.
0: How was you in the movie? Who was me? No, how were you? I mean, how oh, did you? How, w- how did you feel the movie represented you?
1: I found the process of um, of giving the story across to the director quite difficult, um, but when I saw Toby Wallace, who plays the character based on me, and I saw his great sense of feeling and care for the person that I used to be, um, I was incredibly struck by the fact that. I didn't have at that time a great deal of empathy for myself or the person that I used to be, and um, it was really quite moving to see someone else bothering to care about that person. Hmm.
0: Okay, interesting, very interesting. Um, before we get to journalism, I, I, you live in Melbourne. You're on the phone from Melbourne. I did want to ask you a quick Melbourne-ish sort of question, which is, do we not have the right to call an AFL empire a, gr- a green
1: maggot? Although I live in Melbourne... I'm yes. not from Melbourne, so oh, I can't I speak to uh, to any of the cultural practices of this town. Um, I, I, look, I think it's probably not ideal, but I, I, I really, I really can't represent myself as having a strong opinion. Mm.
0: Although it's interesting, isn't it? When you live in Melbourne, as you do, and as I have done, uh, love Melbourne. I mean, it kind of comes out at you, doesn't it? The kind of culture of AFL, really, it's hard to avoid, even in the you know the bookish parts of St Kilda. It's hard to avoid.
1: It's true, even even in Carlton. Um, mm. People are, are want to talk of it.
0: Hmm. So green maggot, unacceptable. I don't know. Look,
1: <laughs> I really, I really don't know. I, don't know. I um. Okay. I, well, I just, g- think, I just think abusing umpires probably, you know, it's probably not the worst thing. It's also probably not good. Hmm,
0: fair enough. Okay, let's go to let's talk about journalism, which is what okay. we're here to do. Um, I wanted to go back a little bit to the results of uh, the digital news report, which came out last week, and we covered it on the show with the lead author of the local part of that, um, Caroline Fisher from the University of Canberra. And I'm, I'm asking this because it goes to very much goes to what you do and what I've done and wish to do again, and that is, you know, what do people, what do news consumers think about journalism? So um, the kind of two or three key takeouts of the digital news report. One was uh, Australians seem to be uh, quite massive avoiders of news. And number two was that interest in news is falling. And three was that many Australians think think the news is negative and not relevant to their lives. What do you think about that? It seems to me that those reports in the broad basically say that we're getting it wrong.
1: Yeah, look, I think... The problem with those reports is they pretend there is one audience and they pretend there is one type of news. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there have always been myriad forms of news and myriad audiences for them. And, um, you know, I think there's a figure in that report that says 65% of Australians are, are sick of reading about politics. Well, 35% of Australians are a large enough audience to build an impressive news organization mm.
0: And, and Karen Middleton, your political co- correspondent, spoke at the launch of that report, and she made the point, and I think it's a very fair point, is that the, when we talk about sick of politics, uh, what are we talking about? Because politics that is obviously intrinsic to our being, intrinsic to democracy, intrinsic to civil life, it's possibly the way we do it, which I suppose is where, again, a bit of a plug, but where the Saturday paper tries to make a difference as well.
1: Yeah, look, I, I just think um, it goes to what I was saying yeah. earlier, which is if, if if we're optimistic about audiences mm. um, and we really, you know, instead of instead of treating audiences with cynicism and pretending mm. that they're um, they're unsophisticated or that they're you know um, desperate for fast and cheap mm. news, if, if if we treat them with some dignity, um, and I think that we should, then I think the findings of reports like this would look slightly different. Mm.
0: Do you think news reading news is a civic obligation, civil obligation?
1: I don't think there is an obligation to be informed, but I think without being informed, you can't have um, you know a truly rich society. And I, it's a, it's a little bit, it, to my mind, all of this kind of traces back to a fundamental mistake large newsrooms made with the advent of the internet. The the response of newsrooms across the world to the collapse in classified revenues when the internet arrived was to decide that because the internet was fast, news needed to be fast and um, because doing things quickly meant doing them less well, news wouldn 't be very good any longer mm. um, and it 's taken you know a, a couple of decades yep. for news organizations to properly turn themselves back from that miscalculation.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, you're dead right about that. I mean, and it's it's still obviously very prevalent that attitude that news has to be fast, and not just in the commercial sector. I mean, you know, the average ABC journalist would write three or four times more uh, stories than or broadcast more stories than they ever did.
1: Yeah, and there's you know there's obviously tension in the in the model to fund journalism, and and that means that you're asking fewer people to do more things, and you know there's there's all of this kind of pressure, but the audience hasn't told us that they wouldn't want things to be any different. Mm. You know, and 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 every time we embrace a new platform, and obviously we need to be embracing new platforms, we shouldn't be changing what we do as journalists. So, you know, the, the platform changes, the journalism doesn't. That's kind of that's my view, but it, it it's not one that's always shared by others.
0: No, and I suppose in terms of Schwartz Media, you know, Schwartz Media, named after Maury Schwartz, who has made his money out of property development. I mean, if you didn't have Maury, would we have the Saturday Paper, or the Monthly, or the Quarterly Essay, or any of that? I mean, he's um, a, b- a true believer.
1: Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting question. The the Saturday paper has paid for itself from launch. Um, the monthly terms of profit, all of our publications look after themselves or make money. But if you didn't have a, a leader like Morrie for an organization like this, so some, someone who actually just really believes in news, um, then I don't know that any of these titles would have started in the first instance. That said, they've all started in a way that has made them sustainable. So it's, it's not a question of being supported or underwritten mm. by a proprietor, but you do need a proprietor who really believes in what you're doing. So what you're talking about really is a combination of
0: um, someone who's got a vision or, you know, loves the idea of news media and also is a sound business person.
1: Yeah, and, and none, you know, any organization is, is helped by having um, a proprietor who, if things went wrong... Um, might be able to, to help tide over startups, you know, various startups need, need capital to keep them going, but it just hasn't been um, the case with the titles we've launched. Mm. So
0: you've been paid every week that you've been at Schwartz Media?
1: <laughs> and and occasionally other people have been as well. Really, incredible, amazing.
0: Let's talk about a, a, a deeper, uh, well, an ethical issue, which is what's happening in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, as you're probably aware, uh, the key publishers in, in New Zealand, the five key publishers and media organizations have banded together and agreed not to spread hate speech and white, uh, white supremacist ideology uh, from the reporting of the alleged Christchurch shooter, Brenton Tarrant. So at a hearing, Tarrant pleaded not guilty to the mass killing, and the trial was set down for May uh, next year. So we don't really know what the effect of this pact between uh, New Zealand's five leading news organisations will be. But interestingly, last week when he pleaded not guilty, um, the story was significantly downplayed on the homepage of New Zealand news organisations. And as I say, uh, there's more to come. What do you think about that pact?
1: Yeah, look, I've seen the pact itself, read the pact. I I think it's it's an entirely reasonable um, list of principles to be signed up to. I've seen it reported elsewhere as, um, as an agreement to censor Court proceedings, or you know, to not report the trial, and that's that's not what's being asked for here at all. Um, what what news organisations in New Zealand have signed up to doing is not gratuitously reporting hate speech, mm. not using their court reporting, or allowing their court reporting to become a platform for hate speech, and not broadcasting or reproducing what could be white supremacist or um, white nationalist. Symbols that might be made during the course of a trial, so you know the the, sort of the Nazi solids that we saw after um, the Norwegian massacre. Yeah, yeah. and just wearing those.
0: So, okay, that's fair enough. But I mean, isn't one of our jobs uh, basically to bear witness and call out? You know, you've got to see evil to understand it, don't you? So, is there any? Isn't there a danger in censoring
1: it? Well, I think there's a greater danger in uncritical reproduction of it. And this is this is the, the tension, this issue. Right? I think um, it's very easy for us as journalists to pretend that free speech is an absolute principle and when we sign up to it, we need not then interrogate our actions. But I, I believe we really actually do need to stop and ask ourselves if our journalism can be regarded as useful and responsible, because I think that's what it needs. I don't think our capacity to cover the trial in New Zealand is held back by deciding not to create and share images of um, you know of, of white nationalism or, or you know to to, to allow um, sim, you know ha- hate symbols to be spread through our pages or you know or online or, or through broadcast. Hmm.
0: Yeah, okay. cool.
1: And I think it goes beyond that. I actually think that I, I think the pact that has been um, you know brought together by news organisations in new zealand uh, is a small part of what we should be looking at you know more troubling to me than what we might hear in that court case and what we might see um you know in images of white power symbols and so on is the fact that many of the principles of the manifesto and and the pact the pact says very clearly that it, you know that the manifesto will be avoided in their reporting. Terence's mm. manifesto is most troubling for the fact that. Ideas within it, many of the ideas within it, have appeared in an uncritical fashion on op-ed pages in this country and around the Anglosphere. And it's that that we need to be talking about as news organizations. It's not whether or not we need to be sensitive about covering a racist terrorist.
0: Well, okay. How would we best go about that?
1: I mean, I hear what you're saying, but how would we well, do we, it? We start to say, do, do we use our op-ed pages and our news reporting and our panel shows and so on to offer uncritical platform to 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 violent um, and divisive views in a way that helps simply to propagate those views
0: so do you think there needs to be a new kind of form of standards I mean there's a bunch of standards there's a bunch of rules and regulations and yeah. obligations on news media and we've seen these police press raids recently, do you think there needs to be a new, as it were, a new debate about
1: what we can Absolutely. and can't do? Absolutely and I, and I think that's largely because the standards that you and I uh, were trained as journalists around and are, and are comfortable with were written by people who look just like you and I, Peter, and, and mm-hmm. um, it, this is not just a question of race, it's also a question of class and gender. Um, basically everything that we hold to be true as journalists came from newsrooms that were white wholly male and where the staffs were drawn almost exclusively from private schools and and you know then we have a press council that can look at a uh, mark Knight cartoon that is you know that clearly contains a racial caricature and say that it's not racist um because there is no feedback from people who actually experience racism
0: hmm, which seems well, so i think as an
1: industry we have it, we have a huge problem not just with um you know diversity of hiring but with appreciating the shortcomings of our capacity to make decisions about what certain things mean.
0: Okay, so what's the first step on this?
1: Look, um, very basic things. The Press Council shouldn't shouldn't make rulings on issues of race without consulting people of colour.
0: I'm sure they make um, efforts to do that. Do they not? I mean, my experience of it is limited as it is, but I was on it for a while. It tried to do that.
1: It tries to do that, but I... But I I cannot see how we could reasonably look at the Serene Williams cartoon, for instance, and say, um, you know, on the basis of the Herald Suns claims that this cartoon um, is part of a style Mark Knight has drawn in for some time and that the criticism uh, came from overseas to say on these two points, well, fair enough, the cartoon's okay. does suggest that there is, is, you know, even if there is an attempted consultation, there's a limited um, reckoning with, what myriad of people of colour were saying about that cartoon.
0: Is that... OK, so they're offended, but, you know, do we... I mean, let's... We could re- re- use the rest of the show talking about this, I suppose, but do we have a right to offend?
1: Um, of course, but there's, there is an accountability for for being offensive. I mean, a press council ruling against Mark Knight's cartooning would have encouraged the Herald Sun to reckon with that cartoon and perhaps apologise or its content um, and and think again about running uncritical racist cartoons hmm. um, you know it's not going to stop Mike Knight drawing cartoons he's not being fined he's not being imprisoned he's not having his um, he's not having his liberties affected um, he's, he's being asked to be responsible hmm. okay, I and he's being asked to think I think this is, this is the other thing hmm. you know, we, we cool. pretend when we talk about um, the way in which the press engages with issues of you know prominence and responsibility over um, hate speech and and you know, uh, other tense aspects of our reporting, mm-hmm. we, we pretend that we that, that there are absolutes here. It's, you know, you either you either can draw racist cartoons or you're not allowed to draw cartoons at all. This is this is the line of they're mm-hmm.
0: It's reductive, you're saying,
1: yeah, um, yeah. And and what's actually being asked for is a little bit of criticality around what we do as journalists, so that we don't just point to pre-established ethics and say, well, that's what we've always done and it's how we'll keep doing it. That we look at those. At those ethics and say, do they still stand? Are they are they sophisticated? Were they written by a broad range of people? And can can we actually look at them and say that all of them are you know are absolutely so? And so perfect? your point is we
0: can't. Uh, your point is that we can't really begin to have this conversation until we have a different way of measuring it or different standards, or we have a more inclusive way of thinking about it.
1: Or until we start saying, actually, let's think about all these things. And uh, you know, a, a lot of the ethics that our industry is based around will remain the same. But I think everything needs to be re-examined.
0: Hmm. Okay. Um, let's talk about politics. Uh, more, more earthy politics than perhaps where we've been for five seconds there. But um, so the government's been re-elected, um, and it would not be controversial to say they outlined no particular agenda over and above. Giving everyone more money, a tax cut, and that everyone should have a fair go. Do you think the media? How would you rate the media's job during the election? I mean, again, I mean, I'm making the assumption of a kind of a homogenous group. It's not mm-hmm. an homogenous group. I agree, but in the you know, on balance, did the media do its job during the election campaign?
1: Look, I think that again, Peter is a is a really complicated question. I think there was some very good reporting during the campaign um i think the problem is that the the government decided it it didn't really need to open itself to great scrutiny it didn't need to put up a a complex plan isn't that Uh, our
0: job though what's that isn't that the job of the news media
1: well, I, th- I think the press in this country pointed out time and again that the coalition was running on a threadbare, <laughs> on a, on a threadbare um, platform. And I, and I think uh, a lot of what was said by coalition MPs that, that was not truthful was criticised. And I think you look at the, at the, uh, the w- Angus Taylor um, water leases story. Mm. Mm. There was some terrific reporting around that during the campaign. The public didn't seem very much to care Hmm.
0: Well, that's always a problem, isn't it? I mean, look at, you, know, I like, think, you know, did the public care about the water leases? Well, a small section of it did, would be <laughs> the answer, right?
1: If the question, though, is about did the media fail by not by not picking from the outset that the coalition were going to win, um, I think that's an interesting question also, and I, and I think um, for a long time I've I've held the view that published polling is irresponsible, um, I think it's irresponsible to publish polling between elections and I think it's irresponsible to publish it during elections.
0: so we shouldn't I, publish polling full stop that's my view well it saves a lot of money for a start
1: It would <laughs> save a lot of money but but you know more pertinently it would it would stop um, focus groups of a couple of hundred people setting agenda on policy issues and it would stop governments and opposition's uh, focusing um, on news poll to decide who should be leading
0: but how do we i I look i don't disagree with you but how do we then listen to people because obviously polls are a shorthand way of uh, listening to people or getting a you know the temperature of the nation type thing so how do we what's the alternative to that
1: well you know journalists and journalism need to be engaged in in communities and, and need to be reporting the reality of communities i think um and obviously, there's a huge amount of hand wringing after the Trump election about the fact that um, big media companies in the US failed to realise what more than half the country was feeling. Um, but I don't think we should be outsourcing that to polling companies. We should be doing that in our reporting. We should be we should be going out and trying to understand the countries in which we live and making sure that our reporting extends well beyond the boundaries of our own experience. Um, I don't think. Telephoning three hundred people and asking them what they think of Muslim immigration, and then running a story off page one saying that we would like Muslim immigration to see if it's responsible uh, you know, I don't <laughs> and pretending that because it's been done by a polling company it's somehow um, you know got great efficacy I don't think that is good journalism
0: so do you think you ever run the Herald Sun or the Age someone like me yes with that attitude
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know that. I'd have any desire to run the Herald yeah, uh,
0: yeah. I Kind of knew you were going to say that somewhere, but anyway, let's talk about uh, the news media and its future. Where do you see growth? I mean, we mentioned your new podcast. Um, obviously, podcasting is going gangbusters. Uh, where else? Uh, if I were a young, you know, journalist or a young journalism student thinking about this industry, you know, seeing, knowing, you know, broadly, you know, they've seen cutbacks or closures at T V the only that last only yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes it looks pretty grim how do you instill confidence what should you what should we be doing and looking for growth where do we look for growth
1: again for me it's it's about pulling away from particular medium and just saying get very good at telling stories mm-hmm. and get very interested in how to tell stories and you know really practice your craft and it, it doesn't matter if that's how to tell audio stories or how to write for online. I mean, the capacity to actually tell a story, um, we think that it's, it's a common trait. It's not. There are not that many people who are practicing journalism in this country who are also very good at telling stories. And I wish there were more, and I wish people who look to become journalists saw that as the base unit of what we do, because it is. Telling stories, stories that well, connect people. Well, it's not, I mean, I'm not even being romantic about it. I just mean really getting interested in the structure of storytelling, getting interested in, you know, um, how we convey inf- information, making stories, making stories work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's not about, you know, connecting to people necessarily. It's not about going out into the regions or, um, you know, pretending that you need to find um, some, some curious individuals for the center of a story. It's about sort of saying, you know, how do I put words in whatever format one after the other in a way that actually carries meaning and and, and has purpose.
0: Mm. No, I think that's great advice, great advice to anyone listening, not just would-be journalists, by the way.
1: Uh, well, it's, it's also all I ever, you know, I've I've never learned anything more than how to write a 300-word news story. Um, and then everything I've done from that has just been putting 300-word stories in order until they get longer and turn into, you know, essays or books or, or films or whatever it might be.
0: Which does beg the question: What next for Eric Jensen? I hope that
1: um, you know the the paper and the monthly continue to do well. The podcast that we've just launched, seven am, is is doing really well. I think the um, the kind of stories we're telling and the way in which we're telling those stories is already a month in where I expected us to be, probably six months in. So I sort of see that that can only um, get better. Um, You're not, not quite answering that question, though. Well, see, you're forgetting that I, that I think all these things are me, Peter.
0: <laughs> oh, no, maybe That's I don't forget that. Yes, <laughs> okay. They're all you.
1: That's yeah. one of the problems with me. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, as, as you know, you took me from the cradle to become a journalist, and then I realized I've got nothing else.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you've got other things. You could do, I mean, you want to be a scientist. It's, you know? Well, I did as a child. That, um, Not that anymore. I left me. Right. So the desire, where does it burn brightest? just to keep telling great stories and growing audiences that will listen to them or hear them or read them? Well,
1: and finding, and finding ways to let other people tell big stories. And, um, you know, just everything I do, I think, is is about being optimistic with what's possible. And um, the more I can find ways for other people also to be optimistic and for um, the pessimism and worse, the cynicism that so invades our industry for finding ways to kind of shake that out. Um, that's what interests me as a journalist.
0: Eric Jensen, thank you so much for your time. I wish you all the very best. It's been wonderful talking to you. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I can only wait to see what, you know, next pops out of the pipeline. Outside. I've
1: got a quarterly essay out on Monday.
0: Oh, do you? What's it about? It's about
1: the election that just happened.
0: Oh, what's your, your uh, takeout? Give us a scoop.
1: I followed both leaders closely on the campaign. and The essay, kind of by surprise, um, ended up being about how much insecurity, especially the insecurity of Bill Shorten, is a leadership trait that we don't value in this country and that might actually be what would heal a country as insecure and incomplete as Australia. Mm,
0: interesting. Uh, and
1: yet uh, Bill Shorten lost. Well, insecure... We haven't we haven't really run insecure leaders um, in, in in the make of Bill Shorten before. Shorten's um, you know really quite a unique individual to be leading the party to an election, um, and we you know we we couldn't elect him because he was insecure.
0: Good. is
1: it's my view. And yet, if we keep electing confident people, we won't we won't really look at reckoning with how that confidence comforts only half the country.
0: Listen, what's the title of the essay? It's
1: called The Prosperity Gospel. Hmm.
0: Nice. Well, well, we should look forward to that. Eric Jensen, uh, Editor-in-Chief of Saturday Paper, um, essayist, author, film star. Um, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Peter. Thank you for listening to The Fourth Estate. Uh, this edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Uh, make sure you subscribe to The Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app, so you can hear us talk about media and politics, and a few things in between at your leisure. And we'll be back uh, with more next week. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter, where our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Many thanks to my producer Anthony Dockrell. My name is Peter Frey, and thank you so much for listening.